Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Corey Farr, author of Long Street at Gettysburg. Corey Farr, author of Long Street at Gettysburg, a critical reassessment. Why is a reassessment needed? So I guess to start out, the story goes back um, nearly 150 years at this point. Um, and I guess what we can start with is in 18, 1866, um, Longstreet contributed to uh, a book by William Swinton. Um, it's called The Campaigns of the Army of the Potomac, in which he offered some of his reflections and opinions on the Battle of Gettysburg and how it was conducted. Um, in, in those interviews for that, for that particular book, um, he did criticize Robert E. Lee's actions at the battle a bit. Um, talked about how maybe he would have approached the battle um, and some of the suggestions that he had even provided Lee uh, during the battle itself. Um, because of that, uh, in once uh, Robert E. Lee passed away in uh, 1870, um, a year after that, a bunch of uh, ex-Confederate officers saw fit to criticize Longstreet uh, for his for his comments about Lee in that 18 in those 1866 interviews with William Swinton. Um, coupled with the fact that Longstreet became a post-war Republican as well, uh, which was pretty much anathema in the South in the post-war years. So it made it much more easier for these ex-Confederate officers to, to criticize Longstreet. Um, but their main goal, the ex-Confederate's main goal, uh, mainly Jubal Early and William Pendleton, um, who were also uh, at Gettysburg. Pendleton was an artillery officer, um, Lee's chief of artillery, and uh, Jubal Early was a division commander in Ewell's Corps. Um, they, and even Early said this, he sought to enshrine the military prowess of Robert E. Lee to the utmost extent. Um, so the fact that Longstreet uh, criticized Lee, uh, or questioned his judgment, I should say, um, Longstreet always had great respect for, for Robert E. Lee. So um, it wasn't anything against Lee. They always had a great relationship during the war and after the war. Um, but. Uh, going back to your original question, the, the critical assessment is needed because that, that, that dialogue between the ex-Confederates and Longstreet in the post-war years, they went back and forth um, in debating you know, what, what should have, what could have happened at Gettysburg. Um, it, created, it created a, lot of, a, a long paper trail. Um, and these ex-Confederates for decades criticized, criticized Longstreet. Um, for, for his actions at Gettysburg in an attempt to defend Robert E. Lee's actions. Were they looking for a scapegoat, like why they, the Confederates lost? Because it certainly couldn't have been Robert E. Exactly. Lee. Exactly. So the, the point of it was to, um, to, to protect Lee um, because they realized he was somewhat vulnerable at Gettysburg in the, in the actions and decisions that he made there. Um, so who better than the low-hanging fruit, the low-hanging Republican fruit um, in the South than, than James Longstreet? 
who became a post Republican and questioned Lee's judgment in 1866. Um, so. He also, in your book, he, in the 1880s, he became ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the Ottoman Empire? Yes, he did. He did. Um, he, he held several posts in, in several Republican administrations in the post-war years. Has, has his star kind of risen and fallen over the years, or has he always been kind of criticized? Or what, what did you find out in, in going through this kind of history of his Yes, yeah, so, so, so kind of c to connect what I was saying about the, about the post-war years and these ex-Confederates who wrote about Longstreet in the, in the post-war years and, and their alleged accusations against Longstreet, to connect that with our, with our present time and why in a, in a reassessment was very much needed was because in, even in the 20th century with some of the more high profile historians, um, Douglas Southall Freeman, uh, Bruce Catton, Clifford Dowdy, Edwin Coddington, they kind of carried on this lost cause anti-Longstreet tradition um, into the 20th century. And then from that point, the historians of the late 20th century and up to the present day have, have also kind of carried on this tradition of the, the lost cause anti-Longstreet agenda of the post-war years and from those historians in the 20th century, Codding, Coddington, uh, Freeman, Catton, Dowdy. Did you, uh, could you explain the phrase the lost cause and what, what that meant? So in my book, uh, really the lost cause just refers to the, the, the complete and total defense of, of Robert E. Lee at all costs. Um, I know there's, there's a lot more to kind of attendant explanations to the, to the lost cause, but really in my book, that, that's what I'm referring, that's what, what I'm referring to specifically. Was that defense justified? Uh, I don't think it was at, at Gettysburg. Um, I think uh, any, any general in the, in the Civil War made mistakes at different battles, including Longstreet. Um, he made, certainly made mistakes at other battles. Um, and uh, I, I certainly don't mean to, mean to imply that Longstreet was perfect in any way. Um, but I also don't think that, that Lee was, was anywhere near perfect as a general. Stonewall Jackson wasn't perfect as a general. How was Robert E. So, Lee as a general? I mean, he always had Stonewall Jackson around. Uh, Lee was, Lee was very, he was a very good general. Um, I think, I think sometimes he, he happened to get carried away at certain battles, um, particularly Gettysburg and perhaps some others, um, in, in being a little bit too, too aggressive. Um, and so he had Jackson who was also shared that kind of aggressive, aggressive mentality as far as tactics go. But he also had Longstreet to kind of balance that. Um, and many other generals, uh, many of uh, Longstreet's aides noticed that Longstreet had a very suggestive mind. And Lee often listened to Longstreet's counsel. So Longstreet often acted as a balance to Lee's natural, aggressive uh, kind of mindset to con conducting battle. So, so that star squad of, of Jackson, Longstreet, and Lee from August 1862 to, to Jackson's death in, in May 1863, that was probably the most impressive Confederate high command in any Confederate army, in my opinion. Did, your, did your view of Longstreet change as you uh, researched this book? Uh, to a certain extent, to a certain extent. Did um, you like him or not like him before you started out? I did like him. Um, uh, so I, I kind of went into this uh, 
by the, even by the time I began researching this book in December 2014, I was somewhat surprised that there hadn't been a book that was devoted specifically to Longstreet at Gettysburg. Um, so over the, over the decades and over the years, just reading the, the uh, continual scholarship on Gettysburg, I kept seeing the same kind of accusations uh, and based on my reading of the primary source material, which um, uh, goes back for, for decades at this point for me, um, 15, 20 years. Um, I was very young when I started studying the Civil War. Um, I, I wasn't really seeing the same thing that historians were seeing um, based on my reading of the primary source material and then what I was seeing in the secondary sources of what historians were writing about Longstreet's actions at Gettysburg. Um, so um, based on my reading of the primary sources, I always had a, a more favorable opinion of Longstreet's actions at Gettysburg. And based on my more in-depth research, I studied the primary sources for over a year before I even started writing. Um, it, it, didn't, it didn't really change too much. By primary sources, what do you mean? Uh, so those who wrote about the, about the battle, um, go, uh, people who were participants in the battle itself. Did, did their views differ on Longstreet at the time? Uh, they did. As I, as I said, with uh, the long, Lost Cause anti-Longstreet group in the post-war years, um, they're very extremely critical of, of Longstreet's actions there. Um, there were some other officers who were more favorable to, of Longstreet's actions at Gettysburg, uh, particularly E.P. Alexander, who was Longstreet's, uh, his principal artillery officer at the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, the, he, was, he was more uh, favorable to, to Longstreet's actions there, um, as was uh, Lafayette McClaws, who was Longstreet's division command, one of Longstreet's division commanders at the Battle of Gettysburg. What kind of career did Longstreet have before Gettysburg? Um, he was, he was, uh, he worked under Lee for, for about a year and a half um, as a sub principal subordinate to, to Robert E. Lee uh, prior to the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, he was active in most of the Eastern Theater uh, battles leading up to Gettysburg. So he was at Manassas, Second Manassas, Sharpsburg, Fredericksburg. Um, and he was also, uh, previous to the war, he was a uh, longtime uh, army. Yeah, he, went, he went to West Point. He, yeah, he was in the Mexican War. What was he like physically? What was he like to be around? Uh, he was... Uh, he was described as a very uh, attractive, attractive man. Um, he was in great shape. Um, uh, there's a great description from uh, uh, one of his principal aides, uh, Thomas Gorey, um, and Thomas Gorey's writings um, about what Longstreet looked like. And he said he was extremely good-looking, a fine soldier, a great horseman. Did he smoke um, or drink? Uh, he he did, uh, especially uh, sadly previous to his uh, his children's uh, death in late 1861. They passed away um, from a uh, scarlet fever epidemic, and that hit Richmond. But pr previous to that, he was he was more into the smoking and drinking and card playing and whatnot. After that, um, not as much. You say in here, or you quote one of his aides, uh, Major Ralph Moses. 
said uh, at one point on this is prior to Gettysburg on June 15th that he must uh, that Longstreet must be exhausted whereby Lee's warhorse rebutted no I have never felt fatigue in my life just days later British observer Arthur Fremantle confirmed Longstreet's apparent stamina the iron endurance of General Longstreet is most extraordinary he seems to require neither food nor sleep yep that was Longstreet yep <laughs> so did you get a sense for what he would have been like to be around Extremely determined, uh, fairly quiet, I would say, um, but definitely a leader on the battlefield and as, and as a corps commander. Um, so that's, that was my impression. <laughs> so so uh, day one, the first day of the battle, when do Lee and, uh, and Longstreet arrive uh, at Gettysburg and where do they arrive? So uh, initially on July 1, they're riding together. They're riding together along the Chambersburg Pike. Um, and this is in the lead up to when Hill begins, AP Hill begins his clash with Union Cavalry um, on the outskirts of Gettysburg. But they are, they are riding together in the morning hours. This is around Greenwood, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the really main, th main topics of the of July 1st that I get into, um, and one of the um, one of the reasons why Longstreet's corps became so delayed on the first day was because at Greenwood, uh, Lee told Longstreet to let uh, some of Ewell's corps um, pass in front of Longstreet's corps um, on the way to Gettysburg, um, because as I'm sure you're aware, Ewell came down from the from north of Gettysburg, because the initial goal was actually Harrisburg. Um, so Ewell was far north of Gettysburg, and uh, part of his corps had to come west and then south toward Gettysburg. That was Edward, Edward Johnson's division. And that slammed into uh, the, the rest of Lee's army, which was passing west to east toward Gettysburg on the Cashtown Pike. So Lee was actually told Longstreet at Greenwood to let Johnson's division of Ewell's corps go in front of, Lo of Longstreet's corps. Was that a snub? No, no. He, uh, Lee actually, Lee realized that Ewell was closer to, to Gettysburg uh, than Longstreet was, and he wanted Ewell's corps to concentrate a little quicker. Hmm. Um, so he allowed Edward Johnson to go first, but resultantly that, that delayed uh, Longstreet's corps from getting to Gettysburg quicker because of Johnson's division and Ewell's long wagon train, which was several miles long. So when Lee and Longstreet arrived at Gettysburg, what was the state of the battle? Uh, so Lee arrived first. Lee arrived first, and it took him a while to get there. Um, Lee was extremely, I'd, I'd say, confused uh, through, the, through the early morning hours of the, of the battle. He didn't really know what was going on. Um, a large result of that was because he didn't have the one cavalry officer that he wanted to depend on. That's not to say he didn't have other cavalry officers, officers present at Gettysburg for screening and intelligence and scouting um, activities, but he only wanted to depend on, on Jeb Stewart. Um, so while Lee was making his way to Gettysburg during the early morning hours, he was kind of confused as to, as to what was actually going on there. Um, the, the, the engagement on the morning of July 1 kind of happened spontaneously, so to speak. 
Um, it, it wasn't really supposed to happen that way. Lee really didn't really didn't really intend it to to happen that spontaneously. He didn't want to bring on a general engagement, which is what eventually occurred when Hill's Corps um, smashed into Beaufort's Cavalry on the outskirts of Gettysburg, and then eventually some some more Union Corps under Reynolds quickly followed up and supported uh, Beaufort's Corps there, or Beaufort's Cavalry, I should say. Um, so and Longstreet took much longer because he was with his two divisions, uh, took much longer to get to Gettysburg because he was with his two divisions, as I said, delayed on the Chambersburg Pike, McClaws and Hood's division. Um, he got to Gettysburg much later. Um, usually, typically, historians put it around the 5.30, 6, 6 o'clock hour. Um, and it was at that point that Longstreet met up with Lee there. And it was at that point that, that Lee was deciding on Lee uh, was deciding on whether he should follow up his attack, his initial attack, on on the Union Army there, um, which had fallen back to Cemetery Hill, it's to very good ground on Cemetery Hill. And once Longstreet rode up, Lee was consulting with his other officers as to if he should follow up his initial success on the outskirts of Gettysburg and attack the Union Army on Cemetery Ridge. So was the first day for Longstreet just kind of arriving and getting the lay of the land? Did they do any fighting? That's correct. Um, most, of the, most of the first day, Longstreet is not, not at the battlefield. As I said, he arrives late, late in the evening hours. Um, and it's at that point, initially when he arrives on the battlefield, that he has the infamous discussion with Robert E. Lee about whether they should actually continue the, their um, uh, the battle at, at Gettysburg, specifically. Longstreet uh, proposes uh, moving, moving the Army further south to get in between Baltimore and uh, get in between the Union Army and, and Washington to be able to re potentially receive a, an attack from the Federals as opposed to um, attacking the Federals at Gettysburg. And Lee famously says, you know, the Federals are here and I'm going to attack them. Why not just keep on going to Washington? Uh, Lee thought that he had the initiative after the first, after the results of the first day. Um, uh, however, he was still somewhat hesitant um, in the in the evening hours of the the first day um, to follow up that success immediately, which is probably what he should have done. Um, a lot of primary sources, a lot of officers. In the post-war years, note this: um, if if Lee was going to follow up his his initial success on the first day in the outskirts of Gettysburg, push the Federals down toward Cemetery Hill, the Federal Army wasn't concentrated um, completely by the evening hours of July 1st. So if Lee would have followed up immediately, that would have probably been his best chance to to break through the, the federal line there. Was the, was the die kind of cast once the Union got established on the high ground? Was that uh, kind of determined the outcome of the battle? I think so. I think that was probably one of the largest factors in the federal success. And um, Lee couldn't tell that? Uh, Longstreet tried to tell him <laughs> several times over the course of, of, of a couple of days. Um, he, he, several times on the first, second, and third, even in the morning of the third, talked about the strength of the federal position. Um, Lee didn't, did not agree. Lee thought that um, 
there, there could be some kind of strategic success at, at Gettysburg, and, and Longstreet did not agree with that. So how did Longstreet take that then? I mean, there's some suggestion in your book that people thought he was pouting. Uh, that's more t supposition, I think. I think they're uh, stretching a bit on that. I don't think that really the primary source record, um, at least any reliable primary sources, support that. Um, I don't. I think that uh, based on based on what I've read, that that Longstreet uh, offered his opinion, as he usually did. Um, the relationship with Lee and Longstreet was was very personal in that regard. It wasn't a typical uh, subordinate commanding general relationship. Um, Long, Longstreet often offered Lee uh, kind of different advice than what Lee would would typically take. Um, and he did so at Gettysburg. Um, I think the, the record shows at Gettysburg that once Lee did not take Longstreet's advice, that Longstreet carried on as the professor, professional soldier that he was. You say in here, you quote uh, Clifford Dowdy, a historian from the 1950s who you mentioned earlier, yes. that uh, he believed Longstreet was in a strangely disturbed state of mind as someone who had convinced himself that since Jackson's death, he had replaced Stonewall Jackson as Lee's collaborator. Yeah. So, so Lee did not see uh, Longstreet as uh, the replacement for Stonewall Jackson, and, and was Longstreet in a pout over that? Uh, to address your first question, um, uh, I don't think that Lee ever regarded Longstreet as a replacement for, for Jackson. Um, I think Longstreet was, uh, first of all, Longstreet outranked Jackson by one day, so he was Lee's senior hmm. lieutenant, not Jackson. Um, Second of all, the record shows, um, even before Gettysburg, that Lee and Longstreet's relationship was extremely close. Lee always camped with Longstreet. Um, and as I said, it wasn't the typical subordinate uh, commanding general relationship. Lee always sought Longstreet's advice. Um, but to, to address uh, Clifford Dowdy's quote there, the, 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 uh, as you said, the disturbed state of mind um, I go into some detail in my book about how Dowdy would even know that. Um, how, how do we make uh, conjecture as to what, how, how these generals, what they're thinking, what they're feeling? Um, I, don't, I don't like to go, go down that path, and I know that a lot of historians have, have sort of gone down that path over the years. Uh, you say here, um I want to ask about, while Longstreet was president, Lee sent his infamous, if practicable, order to Ewell, and he cautioned Ewell to avoid a general engagement until the arrival of other divisions of the Army, an apparent refusal to acknowledge that the general engagement had been ongoing since 7.30 in the morning. So was Lee giving vague orders that could be interpreted different ways? I think that was as a result of his kind of confused state of mind in the, in the morning hours. Um, he didn't really have a good sense of how much of the Federal Army had actually concentrated at Gettysburg. In some accounts, he seems to imply that more of the Federal Army had concentrated on the Cemetery Ridge position. At other times, he thought that less of the Federal Army had, had actually at that point concentrated on Cemetery Ridge. So he, they, these kind of orders about, if practicable, take this hill, 
um, don't bring on a general engagement even though there had obviously been a general engagement going on since the, their very early morning hours, I think speaks to Lee's state of mind on July 1 is very, very confused. I don't think he really had a, a great handle on, on the situation. Um, I think perhaps Ali, who had a, a greater handle on the situation on July 1st, would have immediately um, provided a, a direct order to Yule and then had AP Hills Corps, who was also on hand, support Yule's attack um, on Culp's Hill or Cemetery Hill. But that did not, that did not precipitate. After the war, did Lee ever speak up on behalf of Longstreet when people were criticizing him? Um, so, uh, not really. Uh, Lee did not get into specifics about Gettysburg, really, too much after the war. Um, he was asked about it. He was asked, why did you lose, why did you lose the battle, um, that sort of stuff. But um, he did not, Lee was not the kind of person to really get into specifics about particular officers. What, what was overnight like during the battle? Which, which, which evening? The first? A any uh, of the evenings. I mean, did people <laughs> sleep? Did they have time off? Or did shoot, they tried to sleep. Continue? Yeah, the best, the best that they could. Yeah, they tried to sleep. Yep, for sure. Now, how, how can somebody like Lee or Longstreet lay down and sleep while all this is going on? <laughs> uh, they probably got a few, a few minutes of shut-eye, but, but not too much. And, uh, and a lot of, uh, particularly at Gettysburg, a lot of the major units were, were moving into place or moving toward the battlefield in the overnight hours. Um, certainly on the first day, after the first day's fighting, um, the armies were still concentrating. Um, so. so on the second day, was that the day Longstreet was supposed to have a, an early morning attack? No. A no. sunrise attack? <laughs> um, that's, a good, that's a very good question. Um, that was a, a theory that, that came up uh, in the post-war years. That was actually uh, Jubal Early and William Pendleton's first salvo against Longstreet's performance at Gettysburg. They alleged that Lee had ordered sometime in the overnight hours uh, for Longstreet to attack at sunrise with his two divisions of McClaws and Hood um, in the very early morning hours of July 2. Um, there's absolutely no evidence to mm. support that claim. In fact, um, several officers wrote to Longstreet um, in the 1870s um, about that particular issue, and there are letters in his post-war memoirs uh, from Manassas to Appomattox, um, from Walter Taylor um, and others. Uh, Fitzhugh Lee, I believe, is one. And who specifically say that this, this was not a correct theory, that they had never heard of a sunrise attack before. Um, but unfortunately, historians perpetuated that into the 20th century, even as late as 1934, when Douglas Southall, Southall Freeman came out with his, RE, his, his book, R.E. Lee, he talked about uh, why didn't Longstreet have his divisions ready to attack at sunrise. So kind of these false theories continued for, for decades, um, even after it had been soundly debunked, even as early as the 1870s. Longstreet wrote a book? Longstreet had several post-war accounts um, 
that that he wrote in in the post-war years. How do they read? I mean, is it difficult reading or? No, no, it's it's actually pretty, pretty pretty good reading, pretty straightforward. Um, yeah, he wrote several newspaper articles um, and and obviously his memoirs in 1895 from Manassas to Appomattox. Um, he employed several ghostwriters as well, so some of the phrasing, some of the words, not not entirely his own, but he did have the last look look at it before it was actually published. You said you got interested in the Civil War very young. I did. Was uh, there a book or something that sparked it for you? Um, I, I would probably have to go. Uh, give um, the Gettysburg movie probably the, the credit for that, the, the most credit, I would say. Um, and I, I have no shame in saying that because it is a great movie. Um, and even though it's not entirely historically accurate and it's based on um, historical fiction, um, Michael Scherer is the Killer Angels, um, it is a very, very powerful movie. Um, and I actually had the pleasure last year to... Um, see the, uh, I guess it was the, the anniversary, the anniversary of the film in, in Gettysburg. They actually showed it in Gettysburg and they had um, several actors were there and the director and it was great. It's on when, the big screen. <laughs> when, uh, when was the first time you went to Gettysburg? Uh, it was in elementary school at some point, I think second grade, first grade, yeah. Were you interested in it then? Uh, I was, I was. Very much so. How often do you go back now? Uh, usually, usually every year. I mean, family and job at this point, since I have a full-time job, um, is a little less. But I usually try to get back every year or two. Is there more to learn by going back multiple times? Of course, yeah. Every time you learn something new. Yeah. The, you... the battlefield is huge, and, and there's always a nook and cranny that you had overlooked in a previous visit. When you, go, when you go there, do you, do you have a specific thing in mind? You know, I want to check out this, you know, the railroad cut or something like that that, <laughs> that I have read about and haven't seen. Or do you just go and kind of wander around? Usually at this point I go and wander around, to be honest, um, because I've seen most of the major, the major areas um, of the battlefield. Um, so, yeah, at this point I'm, I, I sort of wander around. <laughs> now, we've been doing this book show for more than 20 years, and we've yeah. done a lot of books about Gettysburg. Why so many books about Gettysburg? Isn't, hasn't it all been told by now? Uh, well, that's why I wrote the book, really. It's because I don't think ever it's been told, at least in this aspect of Longstreet's story at Gettysburg. Um, you haven't found any book about Longstreet at Gettysburg? There have been books that have addressed Longstreet's actions at mm -hmm. Gettysburg, um, but not nearly as completely and not, and certainly not in a book length version. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think that because I think Longstreet's actions at Gettysburg have been misconstrued um, by post-war writers and by historians since, I think that actually the Gettysburg story as a whole, because of Longstreet's significant role there, has been also been misunderstood. Now, day two of the battle, yep. this is the first time Longstreet's troops are engaged. What, what did Lee want Longstreet to do, and what did Longstreet think should be done? Well, uh, Longstreet came to Lee again on the morning of July the 2nd um, with pretty much the same suggestion he had for the evening of July 1. Um, 
he did not like the looks of the federal position, the strength of the federal position. Um, so he, did, he suggested once again from a tactical perspective to redeploy the army further south to get in between uh, Washington and the Federal Army and to receive a federal attack. So the way they were positioned, the, the Union armies were to the south and the Confederate the, armies were to the, the north? The Federal Army was, from a, from a battlefield perspective at Gettysburg, the Federal Army was to the east and the mm. Confederate Army was to the west. Um, the Confederate Army was on Seminary Ridge, the Federal, the federal Army was positioned on Cemetery, Cemetery Ridge. Okay, so so what did Lee tell Longstreet to do on day two? So Lee wanted to attack. Um, however, Lee did not have a concrete formulated plan on how to get at the Federal Army on July 2nd, and that is often not uh, focused on enough, I think, in a lot of books on Gettysburg in the past. So over in the, in the overnight hours of July 1, uh, just to address one aspect of this issue, uh, Lee went back and forth and had staff officers go back and forth. He met in person with Yule um, and was actually thinking about moving Yule's Corps, which was north and northeast of the federal line, and moving them around to either support Longstreet on the Confederate right or, in line with Longstreet's suggestion, move further south uh, to get in between Washington and the federal army. Several times uh, Lee does this on the, the night of July 1 and into the morning hours of July 2, well into the morning hours of July 2. Secondly, Lee did not know if he wanted to attack from Yule's Corps on the Confederate left to initiate the attack from Yule's Corps on the, Conf on the Confederate left or from Longstreet's Corps on the Confederate right well into the morning hours of, of July 2. But the bottom line is, Lee did, Lee did want to continue the attack at Gettysburg. Longstreet was not so much of a supporter. What was the significance of Emmitsburg Road? Emmitsburg Road is, was kind of the midway between both armies. Um, but more so from, from what I talk about in the book, uh, Lee eventually formulated his plan, his attack plan, on July the 2nd uh, to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. And the reason he did that was because of several, well, several reconnaissance missions were conducted in the early, in the early morning hours, but the initial reconnaissance mission, was, which was conducted by one of his engineers and staff officers, Captain Samuel Johnston. Um, again, he did not have Stuart there, so he had to rely on other people. So he relied on Captain Samuel Johnston and other um, engineers and staff officers, uh, a couple from Longstreet's Corps as well, um, who gave him a mistaken impression of where the Federal Army, specifically their left flank, was located. Johnston informed Lee that the Federal left flank was located on Cemetery Hill, which is, was not the case. Um, the, there was tons of Federal activity south of Cemetery Hill, um, Corps coming up the Emmitsburg Road, um, filing in along Cemetery Ridge, all the way down to just north of Little Round Top. Um, so this initial reconnaissance mission that Johnston and others uh, conduct in the early morning hours gives Lee a 
very poor and inaccurate impression of where the Federal Army was actually located. So to your question about the Emmitsburg Road, Lee fashioned his attack plan and said, we are going to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. Hood says this, McClaws says this, several division, uh, several uh, brigade officers confirm this. That was, and Longstreet, of course, um, confirmed that Lee's in actual initial attack plan was to go, was to proceed up the Emmitsburg Road. Um, now, the crux of the matter is, and as I, as I note in the book, uh, several historians over the years, even up to the present day, talk about these golden moments in the, in the morning hours that the, if the Confederates would have, have attacked in the morning hours, they would have met with more success. Now, if the Confederates would have attacked as Lee had directed up the Emmitsburg Road, toward Cemetery Hill, Longstreet's Corps would have, uh, their flank would have been exposed to several Federal Corps that were, by the 9, 10, 10 a.m. hour, were positioned on Cemetery Ridge. So they'd have a lot so, of people shooting at them from so the right as, as they went that As way. Longstreet pr progressed up the Emmitsburg, and there's a map in, in my book that, that shows this clearly, um, as they would have progressed up the Emmitsburg Road toward Cemetery Hill, there was already several Federal Corps on Cemetery Ridge that would have been threatening Longstreet's right flank. So they changed the plan then? They changed the plan at the last minute. Event, uh, eventually, by the time they got into position in, in the afternoon hours, the mid-afternoon hours, um, by that time, by the 3 p.m. hour, uh, Sickles had made the, uh, Daniel Sickles, uh, Corps Commander in the Federal Army, um, had decided to, that he didn't like his, his cemetery ridge position and wanted to move out to some, what he perceived as some higher, which it is higher ground, um, to some higher ground at the Peach Orchard. Was that a sound military decision or was he kind of uh, being insubordinate there? Well, he didn't really, uh, I mean, he told Meade several times that he didn't like his position there um, and Meade kind of brushed him off and uh, Sickles took matters into his own hands and, and moved out to the Peach Orchard. Um, but as I said, it, it, was, it was higher ground than, than the position Sickles was initially in um, on the lower, lower end of Cemetery Ridge, just, just north of, of Little Round Top. So I can, I can see what Sickles was thinking, but he did expose his, he did essentially create a salient uh, for the, in the federal line and exposed himself completely to a Confederate attack. How'd that work out for Sickles? His core was crushed, completely crushed. Well, yeah, pretty much completely crushed on the second day. Um, yeah, Longstreet's, Longstreet directed, especially with McClaw's division, um, directed his attack at Sickles' salient and uh, pushed Sickles back toward Cemetery Ridge. Where was Jeb Stewart at the time? Jeb Stewart was trying to find his way back to, back to Lee at that point. Um, Didn't know where he was? He had a hard time finding him for a while, um, so it took, it, he didn't really he didn't arrive until late on the second on the second day. Um, so he was really a non-factor uh, for most of the battle, um, much to the detriment of the Army of Northern Virginia. You know, you say in here uh, one time, um, July first, uh, Lee told several subordinate officers that Longstreet is a very good fighter once he gets in position and gets everything ready, but he is so slow. Did that 
work against Lee and uh, Longstreet in getting these things done, or, or I think why that, did he work so slow? I think that quote is actually uncorroborated. Hmm. Um, it was an allegation that uh, one of the ex-Confederate officers in the post-war years said that Lee said that. Because in the um, movie, referring back to the Gettysburg movie, <laughs> Longstreet at one point says to Lee, you know, I work slowly. Was that generally known or is that a kind of myth? Um, I, would say that, I would say that Longstreet uh, waited until he had everything well, well in hand. Um, and once he had everything well in hand, he, he packed an extremely hard punch. But he was more of a person who, who put a lot of stock into preparing for an attack. Um, he wanted to make sure that he had everything the way he thought he wanted it. And then once, once the attack progressed, he was, I mean, he was called the Army's hardest hitter. Um, but, but to your question, yes, I think that Longstreet was very much into preparation, proper preparation, very meticulous. So once they realized that the Union was stretched out farther than they thought, what was Longstreet's job then? Um, what do you, I'm sorry. Well, where, you yeah. said they changed the plan. They changed the plan to what? Yes. So uh, once, once Longstreet eventually got his men to the jump-off points, to their jump-off points, uh, attack jump-off points, um, on the mid-afternoon hours of July 2, um, they were not expecting to see any federal troops south of Cemetery Hill, as I said, based on their morning reconnaissance. They certainly weren't expecting to see a whole entire federal corps at the Peach Orchard. Um, so initially, when the Confederates uh, were about to begin their attack, this is around the 4, 4, 4.30 p.m. hour, um, Longstreet directs McClaws to open the attack. And McClaws says, I have this large body of federal troops in front of me. I'm not, I wasn't expected to see this. Um, he had, McClaws had been informed that he would be on the, the uh, federal army's flank. That wasn't the case. He had federal troops right in front of him. Um, so uh, subsequently, this information filtered back to Lee and Longstreet. Lee and Longstreet were together at this point, and they had to refashion their attack plan. And one of the main uh, parts of refashioning that attack plan was to start it with Hood's division, which was uh, positioned further to the right of McClaw's division. I want to read, speaking of McClaw's, you... You write in here, uh, Lafayette McClaws did not appreciate, as he described it, James Longstreet's excessive meddling in his division's affairs on July 2nd. McClaws alleged that during the engagement, he was, Longstreet, was very excited, giving contrary orders to everyone and was exceedingly overbearing. I consider him a humbug, a man of small capacity, very obstinate, not at all chivalrous, exceedingly conceited and totally selfish. Yep. Strong words. Strong words. A couple days after the battle, he said that to his wife. He wrote a letter to his wife about that. Um, what I will say about that is that, uh, particularly in the meddling, the meddling part, Lee actually directed Longstreet to do that, because Lee was on the fence about McClaws, particularly with McClaws' performance at the Battle of Chancellorsville. And uh, McClaws wasn't present at Fredericksburg. I didn't participate at Fredericksburg, the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862. Wasn't crazy about uh, McClaws' performance at Chancellorsville. Lee told Longstreet uh, 
to, to keep an eye on McClaws. Um, so Longstreet did have a heavier hand, did take a heavier hand um, in McClaws division at Gettysburg. Secondly, uh, critics of Longstreet love to point out that letter. Um, it's almost in, in every book that I, that I know about that, that critiques Longstreet. Um, what, what they often don't draw, draw attention to is the fact that in the post-war years, after McClaws had time to reflect on Longstreet's performance at Gettysburg, as I said, that was written a couple day, just a couple days after the battle, his thoughts on Longstreet are almost completely contrary to what he had written in that letter to his wife. So I think it's important that historians draw attention to that, that fact as well and take a look at McClaw's post-war writings. Yeah, you said earlier that McClaw's was a supporter of Longstreet. To a large extent, yeah, that's correct, yep. Uh, how much autonomy did, did officers expect to have during the battle? I mean, if McClaw's was bristling at Longstreet micromanaging, how much freedom did he have to, to make decisions did he expect to have? Uh, I mean, uh, Longstreet, uh, I should say, Lee, let's start with Lee, uh, let his corps commanders, once the battle began, typically, Lee was used to letting his corps commanders ha have their way tactically um, in, in conducting an attack. Longstreet was pretty much the same way. Um, I think the best example of that Two, two examples of that is, is uh, Longstreet's reliance on E.P. Alexander on the morning of July 3. Um, and letting uh, Alexander um, examine how much uh, damage his artillery barrage, his massive artillery barrage, was doing to the federal line. Uh, the, the federal line in the, at, at the center of the federal line on July 3. Um, he, Longstreet, depended on E.P. Alexander's expertise. On that morning, he said so in several notes to E.P. Alexander. But he didn't go out there and micromanage E.P. Alexander. He, he wanted E.P. Alexander's expertise without breathing down his neck. The same thing Longstreet did uh, in May 1864 at the Battle of the Wilderness. He let one of his aides um, pretty much conduct uh, who was one of his, Gilbert Moxley Sorrell, um, conduct a uh, flank attack against the uh, Federal Army at the Battle of the Wilderness. So they had a significant amount of autonomy, these division commanders, the corps commanders, the division commanders, the brigade commanders, especially once the, the battle commenced. Well, you quote a couple of battlefield notes written from I guess from Lee to Longstreet, or and passed back and forth. How how did those notes ever survive? They were kept around. Yeah, they were they were held onto by by different staff officers. And you think the last thing they'd have on their mind at the time was to hang on to a note? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yep, especially in the the din of battle. <laughs> I want to read something on day three because we should probably talk about day three before we run out of time. Um, there was a moment when Longstreet rode his horse out in front of the, the lines of his troops, and you have Brigadier General James Kempner recalled, it was during these moments Longstreet rode out in front of the Virginia brigades to reassure and inspire them. Kemper wrote, Longstreet, quote, Longstreet rode slowly and alone immediately in front of our entire line. His bearing was to me the grandest moral spectacle of the war. Yep. 
not it's the a, kind it's of a great thing. account yeah it's yeah. beautiful almost how how much of a, a impact does that have when you see the commander longstreet was trying to calm his men uh, they were under an intense artillery barrage hundreds died even before they made the assault on july 3 hundreds were either injured or killed um, waiting to to start their attack toward uh, the federal center. Who's so, I, whose idea was Pickett's charge? It was Lee's, but it wasn't his first. It was not his first plan for July 3. Um, and perhaps that hasn't been uh, drawn enough attention to over the years. Um, but yes, Pickett's charge was Lee's second plan on the third day. What his first his, plan, Yeah. Uh, it was called the general plan was unchanged as he puts it, as he puts it in his after battle report. Now what that meant was, uh, as opposed to two and a half, what would, be, what would be two and a half divisions attacking the federal left as it did on July 2nd. I say two and a half because only half of Anderson's division engaged on the second. So two and a half fresh divisions attacking the federal left on July 2. Lee on the night, overnight hours, of July 3 says the general plan is unchanged. Now with one fresh division under Pickett, Pickett is going to support McClaws and Hoods now under law because Hood was um, injured. Um, Pickett is going to support Hood and McClaws spent divisions against the same, albeit stronger, federal line on July 3. Lee scraps that plan immediately upon meeting with Longstreet on the morning of July 3, around 4.30 in the morning. Longstreet simply says, Hood and McLaws are the Army's right flank. Lee says, basically, essentially says, I see that, you're, you're right, and immediately pivots to a completely new plan, uh, which would then encompass units from Longstreet's Corps and AP Hill's Corps, so a multi-core effort, which is gonna take a lot of preparation and a lot of coordination, which means more delay. Uh, really, the attack didn't, the, the preliminary uh, attack didn't really begin until the early afternoon hours. Um, so, there you have it. You, you was, was it sound strategy? I mean, did it have a reasonable chance of succeeding? I don't believe so. I don't believe, not, not as conceived, not as it was conceived. Um, near, nearly 13,000 men made, made the assault. Um, the support plan, uh, often some historians recently in recent years have drawn attention to the second wave theory um, where there was uh, a large wave of other Confederate brigades that were waiting in the wings to immediately follow up Pickett, Pettigrew, and Tremble's attack. Um, there's nothing to support this. Um, in essence, the, the support plan was for advanced main artillery line support uh, to follow up Pickett's column to, to, uh, um, to either on the flank of, of Pickett's column or behind Pickett's column, um, or uh, as far as infantry support goes, only uh, infantry supports would be um, afforded to, to picket support if there was some kind of observable success. 
that, that Pickett made some kind of lodgment um, on Cemetery Ridge, and it's, it's hard to observe when the field is so filled with smoke. And E.P. Alexander talks about that significantly in, in his uh, several uh, post-war accounts, his military memoirs of a Confederate and fighting for the Confederacy. Um, so you either, the support was either uh, uh, infantry, if there was observable success made, or uh, advanced main artillery line support, which E.P. Alexander uh, also talks about being completely impractical, completely impractical. Were there soldiers at Gettysburg who never got involved in the fighting? Like they were held in reserve and then by the time they needed them, the battle was over and they never fought? Uh, portions, of AP, portions of AP Hill's Corps uh, did not fight. For, uh, the 6th Corps uh, for the, on the federal side really didn't fight too much. Um, but most, most of the units, most of the units at Gettysburg did, did have a role and did engage. When it was obvious that the, the charge had failed, and did did Lee and Longstreet get together and say, "Well, what do we do? What do we do now?" Um, there isn't really an, a specific account of that. I'm sure it. I'm sure it occurred. I'm sure they spoke. Um, Longstreet immediately after the attack thought that the Federals were going to follow up and attack the Confederate position on Seminary Ridge. That didn't turn out to be the case. Me did not follow up the, the, uh, the Confederate failure. You, you say in here, in one of the most dramatic moments of the war, Longstreet allegedly uttered no reply to his subordinate when his subordinate said, time to charge. Yes. But, uh, but he, according to the staff officer, he turned his face aside and merely nodded. Was, was Longstreet against the idea and just couldn't bring himself to say, yeah, go? I think he thought the attack was a misbegotten venture, uh, I would say. Um, and he did not like to send his men, uh, particularly, and, and in this case, uh, he, didn't, he didn't want Pickett to be sent forward. He didn't want his men to be sent forward to what he thought would be, uh, ultimately be a failure. What did Lee say about the battle after it was over? What did, what did he write in subsequent years? Did he ever take the rap for it? Uh, well, right after uh, the picket, right after picket charge failed, he famously said, "It's all my fault. It's all my fault." Now, in the post-war years, the Lost Cause supporters um, tried to spin that and say that Lee was being gracious and Lee was being the gentleman and Lee was this and that. Longstreet in the post-war years said, "It is all my fault." Meant just what it, just what he said which are pretty strong words. And now, uh, I think um, part of what miffed a lot of people about Longstreet um, in the post-war years was Longstreet's honesty. Longstreet did not subscribe to the notion that Lee never made a mistake. So he didn't hold himself to that standard to say, you know, Lee was just being gracious, Lee was, you know, he said, uh, it's all my fault, it meant just what it said. Did Longstreet spend much time in the post-war years trying to defend his image, or did he just kind of... He uh, initially tried to ignore it, initially tried to ignore it, um, but I think it got to the point where he felt that he needed to inject himself into the, 
the conversation, um, especially by the mid-1870s. Mid so he, he wrote extensively about his thoughts on the battle and attempted and made several attempts to defend his, his actions there. Um, part of the, uh, I'm sorry, part of the, uh, the lost cause uh, anti-Longstreet argument in the post-war years was uh, specifically calculated to say you cannot trust Longstreet's writings. You cannot trust what Longstreet said. That was their allegation. A lot of the, and the purpose of that was so that scholars and historians in the future could not uh, credibly, in their view, credibly in their view, use Longstreet's often effective and consistent writings on Gettysburg. I, I've read Longstreet's writings in significant detail and I find them to be not completely devoid of error. I would not say that in any way, but they are largely consistent and largely accurate. Do you have a favorite Civil War historian? I would say Glenn Tucker is my favorite Civil War historian. Is he um, writing now or when did he write? Uh, he wrote uh, most famously High Tide at Gettysburg in 1958 uh, and Lee and Longstreet at Gettysburg in 1968, which was uh, pretty much a supplement to his High Tide at Gettysburg. Um, he was a journalist. He was not a, an academic historian, but I think he provided very astute analysis on the Battle of Gettysburg and kind of avoided a lot of what I've seen as the, the groupthink kind of analysis, especially on the Confederate side. I will say that um, when it comes to Longstreet's performance. Is this, is this your first book? This is my first full-length book. Think you might want to try it again? Uh, yes. <laughs> We've been speaking with Corey Farr. He's the author of this book, Longstreet at Gettysburg, A Critical Reassessment. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.